Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, he's got a section which is entitled Recovery, Escape, Consolation. And he's going to discuss recovery first as being one of the main functions of fairy tales, one of the uses that we can put them to. And he's going to begin with some depressing thoughts, talking about the analytic study of fairy stories as being uh, a bad preparation for the enjoying or writing of them. And he goes on and he says, the study may indeed become depressing. It's easy for the student to feel with all of his labor. He is collecting only a few leaves, many of them now torn or decayed from the countless foliage of the tree of tales with which the forest of days is carpeted. It seems vain to add to the litter. And so he's got this great metaphor here, an organic metaphor of this tree that stories have grown upon and then the stories fall down. And what are we going to do? Just collect a few of these broken leaves. We're not going to grow a whole new tree ourselves. And he says that who can design a new leaf? The patterns from bud to unfolding and the colors from spring to autumn were all discovered by men long ago. So there's this sense of, ah, why recreate? Why reproduce something that doesn't really benefit from us just regurgitating the past? And then interestingly, right after he says the patterns were all discovered long ago, he says, that is not true. Now, it is true in some sense. Many of the patterns were discovered long ago, but the inference that somebody's drawing is wrong, and that's where the truth in it disappears. He says, the seed of the tree can be replanted in almost any soil, even one so smoke-ridden as that of England. Spring is, of course, not really less beautiful because we've seen or heard of other like events, like events never from the world's beginning to world's end the same event. There's a newness, a originality, even in the replication of the pattern. He says, each leaf of oak and ash and thorn is a unique embodiment of the pattern. And for some, this very year may be the embodiment. Those of us who are older, we sometimes lose sight of the freshness, the newness that younger eyes may have in perceiving these things. And so he goes on and he says, the first ever seen and recognized, though oaks have put forth leaves for countless generations of men. So the tree is not because it's old, just making the same old stuff over and over and over again, as if it was in a poorly drawn cartoon where they're recycling the same basic scenes. It's ever fresh. It's ever new. We have to pay attention and attend. And so he goes on and he says, we don't have to despair of drawing because all lines must be either curved or straight, nor of painting because there are only three primary colors. We may indeed be older now insofar as we are heirs in enjoyment or in practice of many generations of ancestors in the arts. In this inheritance of wealth, there may be a danger of boredom or anxiety to be original. And that may lead to a distaste for fine drawing, delicate pattern and pretty colors or else to mere manipulation and over-elaboration of old material, clever and heartless. 
And he says, the true road of escape from this weariness is not to be found in willfully awkward, clumsy, or misshapen, not in making all things dark or unremittingly violent, not in the mixing of colors on through subtlety to drabness and the fantastical complication of shapes to the point of silliness and on to delirium. These are all, as we can think about, ways in which people in written language, in visual arts, in other things, try to recover some originality. None of these are actually winning strategies, you could say. What do we have instead? Tolkien tells us that before we reach such states, we need recovery. And he says, we should look at green again and be startled anew, but not blinded by blue and yellow and red. Blue, yellow, red, primary colors. Green, one of the most important secondary color. We could add in orange and purple and brown and black and gray and white. When we look at these, we can say, oh, not just more of the same. We can recover something. And he tells us that fairy stories are going to help us with that. He says we should meet the centaur and the dragon. And then perhaps suddenly behold, like the ancient shepherds, things that are not imaginary, sheep and dogs and horses and wolves. This recovery, he tells us, fairy stories help us to make. In that sense, only a taste for them may make us or keep us childish. Not childlike, but childish. So what does this recovery involve? He's got a parenthetical one line where he tells us that it includes return and renewal of health and not just haleness of body, but that of mind and spirit as well. We should read in there. So that's important, but even more important is what he calls regaining a clear view. Now, this is quite interesting, the way that he describes it. He says, I do not say seeing things as they are and involve myself with the philosophers. Now, there was a lot of philosophical discussion going on, not just in the Oxford of Tolkien, but all around the world at that time, very much oriented by epistemology and metaphysics and the need to see things as they really are, right? And Tolkien is saying, yeah, I'm not worried so much about that. I'm more interested in something else. He says that I would venture to say seeing things as we are or were meant to see them. Now, there's a big difference between seeing things as we think they are and seeing things as we are or were meant to see them. There's a teleology involved in the second that's missing in the first, the, a possibility not just of reaching the end, but of enjoying the means of going along for the ride, right? And then he's got this very interesting discussion. And this goes back to the, you know, how to get out of these depressing thoughts about what we need to clear our windows of, to use the metaphor that he brings up here, so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur. You know, a similar thing with glasses, right? Every morning I have to clean these glasses. I'm not sure how they get so smudged and dirty, other than the fact that I've got these big bushy eyebrows, which tend to get stuff on them. And I'm also kind of a messy person. Once I clean the glasses, I'm like, holy crap, look at all this stuff around me. <laughs> Whereas before everything was kind of dingy and all that. Now, what is the dinginess that Tolkien is trying to free us from? So he uses several different terms. Triteness, familiarity, possession. 
He says that we need to free ourselves of the drab blur of triteness or familiarity from possessiveness. Of all faces, those of our familiares are the ones most difficult to play fantastic tricks with and the most difficult really to see with fresh attention, perceiving their likeness and unlikeness, that they are faces and yet unique faces. The triteness, he tells us, is the penalty of appropriation, of making it ours, right? The things that are trite or in a bad sense familiar are the things that we have appropriated. And he goes on, he says, legally or mentally. We've made them our own. We don't have to pay attention to them anymore. We can just, you know, take them as being things and we don't have to realize what they are in their, you could say, uniqueness in their presence. He says, we say that we know them. They've become like things which once attracted us by their glitter or their color or their shape. And we laid hands on them. We locked them in our hoard, acquired them. And acquiring ceased to look at them. How many things do we do this with? And how many things do we do this with in terms of stories or other types of art? I've already seen that Van Gogh. I don't need to look at Starry Sky again. You know, that's been done to death. Well, look at it again with fresh eyes. And maybe you can recover some of the wonder that was there originally. Now, he goes on and he tells us fairy stories are not the only way to, the only means of recovery of what we've lost or prophylactic against loss. Prophylactic means sort of a guard against, right? Something that will preserve us from losing. So we can recover what we've lost. We can also hold on to what we've lost. And he says one of the things right off the bat, humility. He says humility is enough and he doesn't bother to explain that any further. So, you know, we don't have to say an awful lot about it, except that one of the things traditionally, humility is often misunderstood as being like, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm no good. You know, from David Hume on, word, I would say, where it's called a monkish virtue, there's this mistaken viewpoint on it, right? Which we see even reflected in Mary Wollstonecraft around the same time, a little bit later than Hume, who prefers to use the word modesty for what the ancients and medievals and early moderns called humility, which involves a right understanding of oneself in relation to other things. Humility opens the door for being able to have a grasp on the unique embodiments of the pattern or whatever else we want to say. Then he talks about two different kinds of fantasy. He brings up Chestertonian. Here he's talking about a G.K. Chesterton, right? He says that there is, especially for the humble, more effoc or Chestertonian fantasy. Now, more effoc is a fantastic word, he says, but it could be seen written up in every town in this land. It is coffee room viewed from the inside through a glass door, as was seen by Dickens on a dark London day, and it was used by Chesterton to denote the queerness of things that have become trite when they're suddenly seen from a new angle. So coffee room is written on the glass. You're looking at the glass, but you're not looking at it straight on uh, from the front. You're seeing it reversed and they're like, oh, more effock. That's kind of funny, right? And you realize what's there. Again, the unique embodiments of the pattern, we can realize those because we see the things that we formerly took for granted through this kind of possessiveness, this triteness, and we see them now as they are meant to be seen. And he says that that kind of fantasy, most people would allow to be wholesome enough. It can never lack for material, but it has, I think, only a limited power for the reason that recovery of freshness of vision is its only virtue, its only good quality. It's great, 
but it's not enough. What about, he says, creative fantasy? So he says, creative fantasy, it's trying to do something else, make something new, may open your hoard and let all the locked things fly away like caged birds. The gems all turn into flowers or flames and you'll be warned that all you had or knew was dangerous and potent, not effectively chained, free and wild, no more yours than they were you. And he says that the fantastic elements in verse and prose of other kinds, even when only decorative or occasional, help in this release. So creative fantasy goes beyond Chestertonian fantasy in helping us unlock all of these matters that have gotten too congealed, too seized up, so to speak. But fairy tales go yet further, according to Tolkien. He tells us that not so thoroughly as a fairy story. Why? Because a fairy story is a thing built on or about fantasy of which fantasy is the core. Now you might say, oh, well, fantasizing, that's, that's wonderful. The imagination and all that. And here Tolkien stops us short and says something really important about fantasy that he's going to reiterate elsewhere. Fantasy is realistic, right? Fantasy is made out of the primary world the world that we live in. And then he says, but a good craftsman loves his material and has a knowledge and feeling for clay, stone, and wood, which only the art of making can give. By the forging of Graham, this legendary sword, cold iron was revealed. We find out what iron really is, something that we take for granted. By the making of Pegasus, horses were ennobled. In the trees of the sun and moon, root and stock, flower and fruit are manifested in glory. And he goes on and he says, fairy stories deal largely, mainly with simple or fundamental things untouched by fantasy, but these simplicities are made all the more luminous by their setting. Fairy tales set these things of our primary world into a secondary world, as he's going to talk about subcreation, and thereby allow us to see things anew, to engage in this recovery of what we've lost, perhaps even of what we never realized we had lost that we think we're seeing for the very first time. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.